data now a weapon? Is it the way forward? Is data a window into our future? Is it the new oil? Is data a geopolitical game changer? Is it a friend or foe to American democracy? How do we know? How do we know anything? Welcome to Data Reveal. Welcome back to the Data Reveal podcast. Mark Fidelli here, getting ready to jump into part two of our interview with David Gartenstein-Ross of Balance Global and Foundation of Defense for Democracies. Before we jump in, I want to key you in on a subject that we'll touch on the solution path, if you will, out of domestic extremism and violence related to it, David coins a term, inclusive nationalism. And I want to put a finger on that because, like I said last time in my introduction, looking back these 20, 25 years at really why I work in Washington, uh, my first day in, in undergrad, politics is a profound tension. And it is a tension between those who get who get what, when, where, and how. But I know deep down from a, if you will, from a sense of of calling, a sense of commitment to something higher than just what I get, what we get out of this podcast or this phase in our career. You know, we're, for those of us who are mid-career with sort of those most productive leadership years up ahead and, you know, 20 years in our career behind us, we're supposed to make hay. We're supposed to make a difference. We're supposed to leave this world in a better place than when we left it, than when, than when we came. And I think inclusive nationalism is something we barely touch on. We just sort of hit on it. But I think it's a takeaway that will, well, is really the goal of this data reveal podcast and where it gets its name. We don't know going in when we're exploring the subjects that we're interviewing folks about. You know, we don't know what we're going to find. We know there's depth and wisdom in every one of our guests, just like there is in every one of you. And if there is an inclusive story to come out of this, this reflection on a sad time in our nation, looking back on a sad and tragic time, a violent time in our not-so-recent past for those like me who remember it like it was yesterday, 9-11, of course, we are at a time of profound tension. And I do think if there's a note, a signal in the noise of the left versus right, the extremism all around us, social media looking to basically lure our attention through making us addictive, addictive to the dopamine that we get from scrolling and clicking and liking and being liked. That whole cycle is noisy. But inclusive nationalism, I think, is a signal, a signal I hope to build on in future episodes. So be looking for that, listening for that, as we jump into episode two, part two, with David Gartenstein-Ross. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I think you put your finger on a lot of different things at the same time, Mark. I think if I were to respond with one critical thing, it's to lower the stakes of having different opinions, right? Like, One of the expectations we have in 2021 is that a controversial view of virtually anything can cost you your job and professional status. That is not healthy. There has been no time in human history, whether it's the treatment of Galileo Galilei or whether it's the Spanish Inquisition, 
that having a society in which the stakes of non-conforming opinions being high has been a positive thing. You know, we have, we're in a very complex world and we need outside the box thinking. The other thing is that you mentioned how people want to focus in on controversy and, oh my God, someone said something awful on the internet. We need, like, we need this unified response. It may be justified sometimes, right? Sometimes people do say awful things, but right now we, you know, as a culture, devote disproportionate resources to someone saying something awful in part because, you know, if, if one side is able to cancel another side of a political debate and there's no counter cancellation, then essentially you've had a political debate won through fear. I think you need people to be able to debate others without feeling that this is going to cost them their jobs and without feeling that having a dissenting opinion is going to have tremendous professional consequence. If you lower the consequence, then suddenly we don't spend quite as much time on trying to get people fired or professionally stigmatized when their views are different than our own. Then we start to focus in on the substance again rather than the personality. Today, 2021, if you look at what we focus on, it is primarily a personality-driven information environment in which we're not focusing in on smart things that could challenge our views or smart things that can help shape our views or strengthen them. We're focusing in on the dumb things that somebody that we hate is saying. That's not a recipe for strong thinking or for strong mobilization on a political level or for a strong society. So now as we pivot to leadership solutions, obviously that's a complex topic. Has to do with incentives, who and what we trust, obviously clickbaiting and cancel culture and the response to cancel culture create a tension and a set of incentives for folks to join this group or that group, align with them and get followers, but all in the while creating a more sectarian, potentially violent kind of community and and sort of civic discourse. Inside of that, with data on those trends, and even David, last time you talked about how trends produce counter trends, where can data, specifically data literacy, the ability to use data, to make arguments with it, to navigate it, to present it, to move others down the right path with data. What do the rank and file, as well as federal and local government leaders, all do? They all have a mandate in different ways to push back on the threat, especially the violence. Obviously, support civil liberties, privacy, free speech, freedom of dissent, freedom of assembly. But as Violent actions trigger analysis of, you know, the actions leading up to violence. Data trails are going to be part of that. And there's a mandate for law enforcement to keep safety and security first of mind when violence is on the move, if you will. Now, we know there's political appointees and then non-political appointees in this community, and political appointees have different incentives. So, it feels like a vicious cycle in many ways, but how do, how do we break the cycle? I mean, I think, I think, you know, Mark, this is an unanswerable question at this point in time. I mean, the best cut I can take at it is what I call, I developed this in, in a conversation I had with my friend, uh, Sharik Zafar at, at Facebook, inclusive nationalism. You know, national identity is very important. Post-World War II, hyper-nationalism got a bad name. To some extent, nationalism got a bad name. 
obviously Donald Trump campaigned around nationalism versus globalism. If you're to take away the uh, Trump personality, which is obviously a very polarizing personality, his finger wasn't on the wrong thing, right? You, you, this is a, one of the many dividing lines of our time. I think the other dividing line rather than globalism is sub-national identity, you know, fragmentation into different identity groups. It's important that we have a national identity that we're proud of. And that's not you know, to be falsely proud of it. And that's not to brush aside all of the you know, sordid aspects of the history of our nation. Almost every, you know, every country, every form of identity, you know, possesses some aspects of which people shouldn't be proud. You know, and we, inclusive nationalism means making national identity important, having a shared set of values, and making sure that those are, that, that it is a national identity that is inclusive of people of different races and ethnicities and genders and religions, that to me is, is going to be the, the challenge of you know, the next decade or two, uh, building inclusive nationalism. But as I said, I mean, I, I think that the way that, that this is going to go is you know, above my pay grade. Even with better data, I think we still won't know the answer yet because I don't think, that, I don't think a great answer has been provided by anyone yet. Right on. Yeah. So based on that, looking ahead, critical thinking, lowering, lowering the stakes for having different opinions, how do we create incentives? Let's look at it this way, to, to raise the stakes for the right values, for the right vision. Like, are, are, is it training? Is it leadership? Kudos? Obviously, there's, you know, ways to do the financial incentives, contracts and investment in architecture and infrastructure and analytics, and all, you know, traditional ways government tries to pivot the playing field. But are the right, are we using technology to back the right counter trends to extremism, to polarization? You know, KPIs, just starting from a business perspective, what can business do? What can mindful, responsible, conscientious leaders do to measure their success with key performance indicators, whether that's, you know, leading indicators like investing in the, you know, cloud infrastructures that make it easier for information sharing across the sort of counter DVE community, but also lagging indicators, you know, reduced numbers of incidents, reduced time to respond to incidents. You know, how do we know we're on the right track specifically? What can folks take away, go back to work and say, yeah, you know what? I've thought about this differently. I see kind of this path towards establishing a culture with leadership incentives that point in the right direction, maybe even finding funding. But where, where do we want to point? And I'll even put a fine point on it. You know, Gen Xers, 20 years after 9-11, we've been in our career. We still have the better part of our, you know, most productive years still up ahead of us to make a dent in the underlying elements of, you know, polarization in our culture. What do we move towards? Is it is it simple? Is it a few bullet points? Or are we looking at a significant change even in how we think about our politics, let alone government yes, response yes. to these threats? <laughs> yeah, I was just here... I was just here doodling some words 
um, that were trying to get at the beautiful phrase that he came up with. But yeah, and, and it's interesting though. So, so the words I have down are sort of diversity and openness, I, at least like one of the big general generational differences that I experience between me and my mother is for her, everything is black or white, right or wrong. And that's just not always the case. And so I was, you know, thinking sort of about inclusivity, diversity, you know, being open. But what I'm struggling with is sort of calling that a KPI. And I know you gave us a little bit of a, you know, a a caveat not to necessarily think of it that way. But how how would you even measure this? Like, how would you measure inclusive nationalism? That's sort of what I'm struggling with. I think probably the way that you would measure it, you know, if it were an idea, like, so if this were an idea that embodied American culture, the easy metric would just be uh, your sense of national pride. Um, And we can see very clearly a decline in national pride. It's generational, you know, the younger the generation, the less the degree of national pride. And I mean, one thing to say, just, just so as not to make too much of that is that you'll have national pride, you know, fluctuate over time, regardless. Um, I think that in part based on the information environment that we're in, I think that, that to some extent, you know, group signaling and groupthink can influence these trends significantly. But that to me would be, you know, the leading in, in indication, both kind of overall national pride and then things that are subsets of that, you know, looking at does our country repre- you know, represent inclusivity? There's a whole separate discussion, of course, about what, what inclusivity is, uh, which is actually a very interesting discussion when you look into it. I think one other thing that we could look to as a KPI would be acceptance of people with different views. You know, the, the, oftentimes you'll have people just hate one another these days when their views about the world kind of on a global level, if you look at them globally, are just not all that different, right? Like I, I'm sure, I, I think, Mark, you travel around a lot. I'm sure, Courtney and Andrew, you probably do as well. I, I spend not so much in the post-COVID era, but before COVID, you know, I'd spend, you know, usually at least, you know, a couple or three months out of the country every year. And you know, if you look at the wide variety of values in the world, even at our most polarized, the differences between Americans when you're talking about a mainstream as opposed to like a truly fringe or extremist environment are, are not as profound as people think that they are. And so that would be to me another, another metric because if you have inclusive nationalism, that inherently means that you have room for some divergence in views, that we can still be on the same team, uh, despite the fact that there are issues in which we uh, disagree. Those would be some KPIs that I would look to for success of that uh, broad idea. Yeah, I, I you know, can imagine a meter on a dashboard that's measuring the us-ness of, of uh, our once great society. I mean, I I've, uh, it usually takes me a, a couple of, beers or glasses of wine before I get up on my uh, great society soapbox and begin to uh, rant about uh, a need to actually care about our neighbors and not just, you know, tolerate them to, to legitimately care about the the overall well-being. I think it's unrealistic to, to say that a person would care about the societal well-being more so than they would care about their 
their own or their immediate families, but uh, to get uh, to a point where that usness is a key KPI to me is, is something that uh, would, would be nice to see, but hard to imagine at this point in time. I, you know, to you know, go you know even further into sort of that data, the various uh, contributors, causation, correlation. I don't know. Back to you know Mark's initial statement about uh, Gen Xers and where we've gone since then. Our opinions were formed by a, a in our, our sort of worldview was formed by a much smaller number of inputs. Our parents, our teachers, a friend, a professor, you know, uh, a book, but not a million inputs streaming at us in the in the, in the way of comments, thirty second reads. Uh, and TikToks or memes. So the noise in that data feed around getting to a to improving our usness is, uh, I think, uh, a big thing to overcome. You know, as we get come back around to domestic violent extremism, that's a phrase that was only known to a few policymakers a very short period of time ago. You know, suddenly it's one of these things that's pretty prevalent in the headlines and the, you know, the primetime news coverage. I can't say that uh, in the end that ends up being a good thing. I'd love to go back to a time where it was left to a few folks that were really studying the why and, and getting back to turning the knobs, pulling the levers that, uh, that reduce those, uh, those negative inputs to the usness. So <laughs> I'll uh, continue dreaming. Continue ranting, I'm sure. That's great. Inclusive nationalism. That is something I think as a, you know, again, Gen Xer with potentially God willing health and opportunities allow, don't get canceled for saying something stupid. Uh-huh. That that's a vision I can work towards. I can even train, you know, sort of people around me that I have responsibility to lead or my kids to sort of think on target, if you will, train their minds on target. There has to be a level of national identification, even identity, with the kinds of values that relate to inclusion, sacrificing for others, not just having an information bubble around you, spending time with those who aren't like you and understanding what makes them tick, and respect. You know, that, that's all related to inclusion, you know, community. Eventually, you have to fight for it if the sort of right versus wrong, left versus right, you know, sort of, Courtney, you said black versus white thinking narrowly looks at everything as sort of polar. I think there, there's an us-ness dashboard inside of us, right, that, that we know is, is when we're pulling together in the same direction with others, it just it's, it feels good. You don't have to look over your shoulder all the time. You can pick up new relationships and, and sort of jump right in because you're pulling in the same direction. And then you get network effects, which are hugely Im- impactful. Where is the hope for inclusion? Is it spending a little more time in this great society speech making mode that sometimes takes a couple drinks to get into? Right? Is it training yourself to think optimistically, hopefully, when the data maybe says, eh, time to be concerned? What is, you know, I'm trying to put my finger on a takeaway, and maybe that's too grandiose, too ambitious, too on the nose. But I can't help but think China, Russia, 
especially watching everything we do, gathering information on all we say, and they do, we know that. They certainly have the capacity to do it just by monitoring the open internet. But that's also our strength, right? That's nothing to fear. They're trying to exploit domestic violent extremism, polarization, a lack of usness. So if we put it in those terms and say we need this hope for an inclusive future for our nation and for those who have responsibility as frontline responders and operators and those who enable and support them with data and tools and technology and those sorts of things. Well, I like how you put it. And so to add three things to it, just three takeaways. But before I get to them, let me, let me say I really enjoyed this conversation. It's obviously a far-ranging conversation where you know, we, we were looking back at the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and went to domestic violent extremism, to the ills of society, to inclusive nationalism. So I'll, I'll give three high-level takeaways, which I think actually, Mark, are just drawn right out of, of your last statement. The first one is ownership. I think ownership is important. Ownership is you know, feeling that you have a stake and that you can make a difference. If you don't like the direction that the company you work for is headed in or the school that you're a part of is heading in or the country that you were born into is heading in, you have the ability to make change, to be an agent of change. That doesn't mean you always get your way, but I think feeling ownership, taking ownership is absolutely vital to building the kind of society that we want and ultimately the kind of society that our kids deserve. Second, humanize others. We have a tendency right now in our discourse to dehumanize people who aren't like us. Dehumanization, when instituted at scale, never ends well. Least of all to the people who are engaged actively in dehumanizing others. As you said, Mark, there's, there's plenty of reasons, and, and as Andrew said, you know, there's plenty of reasons for usness. There's plenty of reasons to care about our neighbors. But I think just if we humanize other people, our tendency will be to do the right thing towards them. And then the third and final point I'd have is we live in a complex world. One of the reasons I think that the degree of polarization that we have and distrust is so foolish is I'm only going to outsource my thinking in a tribal way if I think that tribe has the answers and nobody else does. Looking at the range of commentators that are out there, I see some wisdom, right? It's not as though we, we are bereft of good commentators, but commentators were, who, who I trust in some way are the exception rather than the norm. And, and even those who I trust, I think very highly, for example, of Yuval Noah Harari, a historian. But even with, with his work, oftentimes when he's writing about my areas of expertise, I feel like he's a little bit out of his depth. That there, are, that there are folds and things that he's missing out on, which is the inherently the case for somebody who's going very, very broad. So I'd say in a complex world, you have to be able to take in other opinions. And look, there's going to be plenty of opinions that are not worth our time. I'm not saying take in every opinion just for the sake of opinions. I, like, I've seen enough in terms of uh, you know conspiracy theories or dehumanizing discourse or highly polarized discourse, that there's plenty of stuff that is going to signal to me that this is not worth my time. But other perspectives are inherently worth my time. Any perspective that is different than my own 
articulated thoughtfully and based on valid data is something I'm going to want to take in because it's going to make me better and it's going to help me understand this complex world better. So I guess those are the three hopeful things I'd leave you with. Ownership, humanize others, and in a complex world, we can't afford to shut our ears to others just because their beliefs might be somewhat different than our own. Profound. David, thank you. On behalf of the Click Federal team, all those that support this podcast, we appreciate your time. We thank you for your service to our country with your expertise, with your response to that calling you felt 20 years ago, and we look forward to next time. For listeners thinking about 9-11, thinking about DVEs, looking ahead with hope, go give someone a hug. Tell them you care about them. Tell them you're committed to making our society as great as it can be, including everyone. Enjoyed it. Big ideas. Bye, guys. Thanks. That's a wrap. Till next time. That concludes our two-part interview with David Gartenstein-Ross. We thank Click again for the support. The interview questions and thoughts are our own. Andrew, Courtney, and I do not necessarily reflect Click or its executives, but we do hope that the spirit that is inclusive in our company and many cultures, many companies we've seen produces the kind of inclusive leadership that supports this vision of inclusive nationalism in this time of real and profound change. If there's anything that is a personal takeaway for a data reveal perspective, if you will, it's uncovering that depth of confidence that you find uniquely when you lock arm in arm with others who share that calling to respond to a common threat or a common challenge. Each of us trying to get what we can out of politics, out of work, out of data, that can go just so far. But transactional is not the same thing as transcendent. And I do think we touched on transcendent topics for your reflection at this time, 20 years after 9-11, when we still have so much left to think about, about what divides us, what unites us, and what is really the source of strength when threats come. I think togetherness isn't just some handout. I do not think inclusion is just a way to pacify those who have been left out in transactions by those in power and those with influence. I do believe everyone, I know, everyone has much to contribute to this task of inclusive nationalism. I think it is consistent with the profound experience of politics that I was so attracted to my very first day of undergrad. And I think it runs smack into the common who gets what way of thinking about government, politics, leadership, and data. And if that's a reveal for you, I hope you take that forward. I will for me. And until next time, Thank you for your time.